Well, we continue this morning in Matthew, and uh, like we've been saying, where we're at in Matthew, these few sections that we've been looking at, is really a turning point in the book. Most of the book has been the ministry of John the Baptist and then Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. It's near, so you need to repent. And that idea of the kingdom drawing near is also the idea of the day of the Lord drawing near. The idea that God is going to culminate all things. He's going to judge the wicked and he's going to save his righteous remnant and he's going to gather his people and then he's going to have his kingdom, the kingdom of Messiah. But though that message has been offered and reinforced with many miracles, Jesus has been rejected by Israel, certainly its leadership in the, um, of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they've rejected Jesus, they're opposed to him. And then we see the crowds, they're, they're still around, they're still interested in Jesus, but they're not willing to become disciples, they're not willing to turn allegiance from sin and self and entrust themselves to Jesus as the Christ. And so it's led to this turning point. And it's led to what we saw a couple weeks ago, Peter confessing Jesus to be the Christ. So the disciples, uh, the crowds don't see. They think Jesus is a great prophet, but that's all. But Peter concedes the truth by the grace of God, by the Father revealing the Son, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the ultimate Davidic king, the ultimate ruler over the world. And Jesus says, yeah, Peter, you, um, you are Peter, you're a rock, and on this rock I'm going to build my assembly, my church, my temple assembly. The Messiah is a temple builder, and now he's going to build his new covenant assembly. He's going to build the church. And, but it's going to be costly. It's going to be costly. And that's what, uh, even as Jim alluded, that we looked at last week, that Jesus, at this turning point, he's... Since he's been rejected, he now must, and it has always been the plan, that he must go to the cross. He must suffer and die. And that's not what the disciples want to hear. That's not what Peter wants to hear. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to actually be my disciple, then you just need to disown yourself, deny yourself, which means disown yourself. You're renouncing self. You're renouncing your will and living for yourself. And you're saying God's will, Christ's will be done in my life, and then you're taking up your cross, which means you're willing to die the most shameful and painful death in the eyes of the world, up to and including actual crucifixion, and you are following the Christ. Why in the world would anyone want to do that? Well, last week we looked at what Jesus said. It's the, uh, the, the Messiah, though he's going to suffer, it will not end in suffering, it will end in glory. The glory of the Son of Man coming, the glory of his Father and his angels to establish his kingdom. And that's the message that Jesus has been saying. You, you take up your cross, you, you deny yourself, you disown yourself, you take up your cross and follow Jesus because of the glory that's coming. The Messiah is going to suffer and die. It's necessary. It's planned. It's predetermined. That language of must that we see in verse 21, it must happen this way, but that's not the end. It's Glory through suffering, or another way to say that, it's suffering before glory. And that's how Jesus has motivated his disciples. Here's the end. You can gain all your life in this this world. You can save your life in the eyes of the world now and lose it in God's eyes for all eternity. Or you can lose your life now for the sake of Christ 
for the sake of following the Christ, for the sake of seeing him as treasure, and what? Then you'll save it. You will enjoy the Messiah and his glory for all forever. And that's how Jesus has ended. He's ended on that note in verses 27 and 28 in chapter 16. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to his activity, the whole course of life. It's going to display, it's going to show in your life whether you have chosen to follow Christ or whether you're trying to save your life in the eyes of the world. And then he ends in this promise, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we said, he's talking to the disciples that are right there, some standing there, and he's calling them to die for him, the most shameful and painful death in the eyes of the world possible. Well, why are they going to do that? They're going to do that for the end game. They're going to do that for the glory that's coming and he gives them a promise that he's going to give them a snapshot. You will see, you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He's going to give that grace to some, not all of the disciples, but some of the disciples of seeing the glory he's saying will come in the future after the suffering so that you can do what Jesus is calling you to do now. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And now today we get the fulfillment of that promise in verse 28. We get the, the, the fulfillment of that promise. So this section and what we see in chapter 17 verses 1 through 13 is really tied to what Jesus has been doing in the last couple sections. And the main idea for this text this morning is this. Listen to the Father's beloved Son, the ultimate prophet, king, and mediator, and his message of suffering before restoration. That's been kind of the theme, but now it gets reinforced from heaven itself. Listen to the Father's beloved Son, the ultimate prophet, king, and mediator, and his message of suffering before restoration. Two parts this morning. In the first part, in verses 1 through 8, you need to see this. You need to listen to the Father's beloved Son. You need to listen to the Father's beloved Son. Look at verse 1. And after six days, six days after what? Well, six days after Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, six days after Jesus has says it's necessary that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Six days after Jesus had said, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me if you're going to be my disciple. So this, this episode, what's happening in chapter 17 is tied even through that that temporal marker uh, with the previous section. After six days, six days after all that, Jesus took with him Peter, the stone, remember that's what Peter means, the stone, and James and John, his brother. That's some of those who were standing there in chapter 16. He's talking to his disciples at the end of chapter 16. He said, some of you standing here, well, he takes some, so Matthew's setting us up to see, yes, what is coming is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in 1628. And Jesus leads them up to a high mountain by themselves. He leads them up to the high mountain privately. Now, we're not sure exactly which mountain it is. Uh, remember, he, and back in uh, 1613, he's way up in far north in Caesarea Philippi, and that's at the base of Mount Hermon, which is the highest peak in Palestine. So it could be Mount Hermon. It could also be a place like Mount Tabor or Mount Maron. 
doesn't really matter which mountain it is uh, for the purposes of this episode. It's a high mountain, and Jesus takes them up there. Now, you should pay attention to the geography, though, that it's a high mountain. There are very important particular things that happen in the history of redemption as you walk through the Bible that happen on top of mountains. And we're going to see that's part of the scenery that's set up, that's commu- being setting up for what Jesus and the Father are communicating in this scene that's unfolding. So they get up there, verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. Uh, transfigured just, just means transformed. He's transformed. He's changed. In what way? And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. So Peter, James, and John are seeing this. And keep in mind, this is the Jesus they've spent a lot of time with over the last few years, at least a couple years probably at this point, maybe three years. They spent a lot of time with Jesus, so they know his face. But now his face beams out like the sun. And think about that. I don't know if probably all of us at one time or another have on a very sunny day, we've tried to look at the sun directly in the sky, and you can't do it. You can only kind of glance at it or look at it through a dark glass or something like that. And now Jesus' face, the face that they know and are familiar with over all these years, is shining like the sun. And not only that, his clothes, those clothes that they're familiar with, these uh, very simple clothes, all of a sudden they're bright as light. Light itself, pure, clean light. That is how Jesus is transformed. Now, what is going on here? This sort of um, transformation, this sort of uh, uh, picture of someone who has a shining face and bright clothes, you do see it a little bit in the Old Testament, and you see it primarily with uh, an angelic messenger or some sort of heavenly being. So what we are seeing here, it, it, it shows that Jesus has a heavenly glory. And really what's happening, as we've seen in the rest of Matthew, Jesus is God the Son incarnate. So really what's happening at this point is his, his, the veil of his humanity is being lifted briefly, and the glory of who he is as God the Son is shining. There's another dimension to this, though. Because the scene that's being painted, and you'll see it even more as we walk more through it, the scene that's being painted is reminiscent of a scene from the Old Testament. And that should be a surprise to us. We see that littered throughout Matthew's gospel. And I want to take you to Exodus, Exodus 34, to show you some of those allusions that are being brought up in the transfiguration itself. Because once you understand what's being alluded to, it helps understand What is Jesus communicating and what is Matthew communicating in his gospel? So turn to Matthew, or excuse me, turn to Exodus 34, uh, 29. You will notice in your bulletin today there are a list of of passages there. I put those there so you can follow along. You can either turn there with me. We're going to do a lot of page turning. Uh, So you can either follow along if you want, or you can just listen and then go back to those passages later. But where we're going now is Exodus 34, 29 to 35. We read this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, 
with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone, because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation to return to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that Yahweh had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and took, told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he would, went in to speak with him. And that episode is being alluded to in the transfiguration. But there is a key difference. You see, what happened with Moses, Moses goes up on this high mountain. He goes up on Mount Sinai. He goes into a glory cloud, um, God's manifesting God's presence and glory. And Moses talks. He has an intimate conversation with God. And he comes back, and his face is shining. But the type of shining of Moses' face was a reflected glory. It's like uh, the sun shining on a mirror and reflecting that back, only in this case, it's a face, and the face kind of absorbs that glory so that the people see it. That's why the people are afraid, because they see God's glory reflected in the face of Moses. Well, that's being alluded to in the transfiguration, but there's a key difference. The key difference is, the difference is, where is the glory coming from? From the face of Moses, it was the face, it was the type of glory of reflection in the transfiguration, it's the type of glory of source. It's direct from the source. And that's even what happened, if you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, where did Jesus go? He went up a mountain, and then what? He spoke. He spoke about the law, just like Moses, except not just like Moses. He spoke the law directly and with authority. And it's the same sort of thing here. We see Jesus as God the Son incarnate in his glory being supreme, being like Moses, but supreme to Moses. And that's going to continue to build. That theme is going to continue to build as we see this passage unfold. And who should show up next? In verse 3, but the very fellow we were just talking about. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought that that's kind of odd, like, there's this great scene, and we're seeing, we're seeing Jesus' glory, um, and he's, he's unveiled, uh, he's unveiled uh, some of his heavenly pre-incarnate glory on this mountain. Like, why do Moses and Elijah need to show up at all? Like, shouldn't all attention be on Jesus? Well, it is, but there's also a contrast going on. There's a lot going on here. We've already spoken to the fact that Jesus' shining face, it alludes to the idea of Moses uh, on Mount Sinai. Well, here we go. Moses and Elijah, both of those characters are pro premier prophets. Of course, Moses himself is the lawgiver and the one who, by God's grace, brought Israel out of the, um, in the first exodus and brought them to Mount Sinai. And he talks with God on Mount Sinai. But so did Elijah. If you remember, uh, Elijah is speaking to the, in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 18 and thereabouts. 
He's speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel hundreds of years later, and he's seeking to bring Israel to repentance, to the law, um, in, from their heart. And it turns out, and after that, that scene in 1 Kings 18, where you know, Elijah uh, slaughters the priests of Baal and all of that, at, right after that, in the next chapter, he goes to Mount Sinai and he talks with God. So both of these prophets had talked with God in a very intimate sort of way. And notice who Moses and Elijah are talking with here. They're talking with him. Who's him? They're talking with Jesus. They're talking with God the Son incarnate. And all of that emphasizes Jesus' supremacy. He's supreme not only in the fact that, uh, like we've said, uh, the glory that was reflected in Moses' face was a reflected glory, but the glory from Jesus' face is the glory of coming from the source. But see, Moses and Elijah are here. They're talking with Jesus. The focus is on Jesus and on his supremacy. But there's more to it than that. You see, there's only, if you were to hear Moses and Elijah in the same context, that would remind you, and it probably reminded the disciples here, of a key passage in the Old Testament, a passage we visited before in the book of Matthew, that speaks of both Moses and Elijah. Turn back to Malachi 4. Malachi 4, right before Matthew, end of the Old Testament in your English Bibles. And we read, in the context of Malachi 4, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 6 in Malachi 4, the context is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now, what is the day of the Lord? The idea of the day of the Lord, and there could be multiple days of the Lord as they um, work through history. There's an ultimate one, and then there's many that might lead up to that. But the idea of the day of the Lord is God coming to judge the wicked, including those among Israel, and to lead his faithful remnant in a second exodus. That's the kind of language the prophets use. Moses brought Israel out in the first exodus, but because of the exile, because of the disobedience of Israel, they're all scattered. And the idea is God's going to regather Israel, and it's going to be like a second exodus, and that coincides with the idea of the day of the Lord. God's going to judge the wicked, including those among Israel, but he's also going to rescue his faithful remnant. And that's what you see. That's kind of the context of Malachi. Malachi is written after the exile. They come back, but nowhere near in what is prophesied of a regathering of Israel. And so in that context, Malachi says this, Malachi 4.4, Remember, Israel, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai. For all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And you see what's going on there. Moses is setting the standard. The standard is Moses, the the law of Moses. The the law of Moses was never designed to earn anyone's salvation. It was a way of saying, Israel, I've rescued you graciously by grace from your slavery, and I've brought you as a people to myself. And now here's the law, really literally the instruction of how you're supposed to live for me 
so that I will bless you and all the nations of the world will come to you. Well, Israel's failed in that. They've been dispersed amongst all the nations. And what is God saying at the end of Malachi? He's saying, remember the law. That's the standard. But not only remember the law of Moses, Elijah, I'm going to send Elijah to you. And what's Elijah going to do? Elijah's going to come and he's going to turn. That's the language of repentance, the language of turning He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers before the day of the Lord to essentially prepare prepare Israel for the day of the Lord. The idea is a heart restoration in Israel such that it's not only vertical, that Israel renews its relationship with God himself, but it influences horizontal relationships, including between the generations, fathers turning to children and children turning to fathers. And that is spoken of, that idea of returning, even after uh, God's curses come upon Israel, even after Israel's dispersed for their disobedience. That idea of repentance and, um, is, is spoken of even in the law itself. Go back to Deuteronomy 30, key chapter in your Bibles for understanding how history unfolds, especially with Israel and how that works in relation to God's plans for them. But I want you to see the same language that's being used in Malachi is already set up for in the law of Moses itself. And so what I'm trying to show you is that what's going on in the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, there's a lot of backstory there. There's a lot of backstory. Even by their appearance together, talking with Jesus, it's alluding to these issues in Malachi and it's alluding to these issues in Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 through 6. Basically, Moses gives the law and then says, okay, here's how history is going to unfold. You're going to depart from God, and you're going to be dispersed. All the curses are going to come upon you. You're going to be in exile. But then God gives hope through Moses in Deuteronomy 30, and he says this, and when all these things have come upon you, Israel, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you, and return, that's the language of repentance, to Yahweh your God with you and your children and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then what? Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and we will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there Yahweh your God will gather you and from there he will take you. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you prosperous and numerous, uh, more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And so how does this all line up? Well, that was already promised in the law of Moses. The law of Moses is the standard. Uh, Israel is supposed to, because it has a relationship with God, live by the standard of the law. But when they do not, they are scattered and dispersed. But God says, it's going to happen. You're going to repent as a nation. I'm going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to bring you back together in connection with this repentance. And then in Malachi, we get a little more information Who's the guy that's going to call to repentance? It's going to be Elijah before the day of the Lord comes. The day of judgment and regathering and blessing for Israel. So now it makes a little bit more sense why in the transfiguration we have Moses and Elijah 
there because what has been the message of John the Baptist and Jesus? Repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. In other words, repent because the day of the Lord is near. That's kind of the mentality that you see in uh, John and then in Jesus. But what has happened in Matthew? What have we seen? There hasn't been repentance. Yes, there have been some who have repented, yet the, like the disciples, and yet by and large, the crowds, the leadership of Israel, they have not repented. And so what's happening now on Mount, the uh, Transfiguration is a conference, a conference with the key players of the day of the Lord. And in fact, this is reinforced by Luke's account because in Luke's account, it says that Moses and Elijah gives us a little bit more information. It says they're talking to Jesus. It says in most English translations about his departure, but that word for departure is his exodus that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And we know and understand what that means, that Jesus is forming the necessary movement to redeem a people, redeeming a people from their sins, paying for the sins of Israel and the nations in Jerusalem so that he can prepare a people for the day of the Lord. So these folks come together on Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, one, to show Jesus' supremacy to these guys, but these are the key players in the regathering of Israel. They're having a conference before Jesus goes to the cross. Now, keep in mind, what is this a fulfillment of? Uh, it's a fulfillment of um, Matthew 16, 28. What did Jesus promise? You will see, some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What are they seeing? They're seeing the, G, Peter, James, and John. They're seeing on Mount Sinai, they're seeing a snapshot of the Son of Man in his glory, talking with the key players of the coming of the day of the Lord. They're seeing a snapshot of the coming of the kingdom. And based on that, this is how Peter responds in verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents or three uh, booths or three structures. The idea is here is not so much tent, but the idea of making a structure out of branches. Like they're on top of a mountain. It's not like they have tent material there with them. It's the idea of grabbing branches like in the Feast of Booze in the Old Testament, and uh, creating a structure that you could stay in. If you wish, I'll make three tents, three booths, three tabernacles uh, here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, what is this all about? At the very least, we can say that Peter is seeing what Jesus promised he would see. He's seeing a snapshot of the coming kingdom. And we know, based on the character of Peter from the last couple sections, Peter is all about that. Peter is all about the kingdom coming, the Messiah reigning in his glory. He is all about that. And so what is Peter wanting to do here? What is this all about? He, he either thinks the kingdom is coming right then, and he just wants to do something practical. All right, the kingdom's coming. Let's get going. Uh, let's take the practical measure of building a few structures to have some shelter here on the mountain. He wants to prolong the scene and he really wants the kingdom to come because that's what he's seeing. He's seeing a snapshot of what he wants to see. He's seeing a snapshot of the kingdom coming, and he is. But he's misunderstood. He still misunderstands, and we know he doesn't have the right mindset yet because of what we saw last week. 
There's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. He's leaving out the suffering aspect. He left it out last week. He's still not there yet. And that's what the Father then comes next to reinforce. Verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They were greatly afraid. Now, again, like I said, there's a picture being painted here that's supposed to draw our attention back to the Old Testament because this cloud, this bright cloud, uh, that shows up quite a few times in the Old Testament, and it's the cloud of God's glory and presence. It's the same cloud that settled on Mount Sinai before, the cloud that Moses went up into, and that's why he had his glowing face. Well, it's the same sort of cloud, and even the language of overshadowing uh, is the same that's used in places in Exodus to describe God's presence, God's glory cloud coming to rest on a mountain. And even a similar things happen. You remember at Mount Sinai, the people of Israel, they, they see the cloud, they see God's glory, they see God's presence, and they hear his voice, and they are absolutely, what? Terrified. Exactly like the disciples are here. Because it's God's presence, God's glory, and why, why are they terrified? Why were they terrified at Mount Sinai? Because a sinful people, a sinful humanity cannot dwell with a holy God. You think back to the garden for a second. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Man dwelt with God. I mean, it's described just so gently that um, God would walk with Adam and Eve during the daytime. No hindrance, cool, lush garden. But then once sin enters the world, we flash forward to Mount Sinai, and the mountain's about to explode, and it, the smoke of it's going up like a kiln, and they hear God's voice, and they're absolutely terrified because we try to draw near to a holy God within our sinfulness, we will be annihilated. We will die. That's what sin does. That's what our sin does in the eyes of a holy God. We cannot draw near to his glory, even though his glory is the best and most satisfying thing for our souls, we cannot draw near naturally. And yet, hear what the Father says here. This is important. The voice speaks from the glory cloud again, but what does the Father say? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And you're like, I've heard that before. Yeah, you heard it in Matthew 3 at the baptism of Jesus. The exact same words. That time, the voice comes directly from heaven. Here, the voice comes from a cloud, which is representing God's presence. So heaven is speaking, but it's the same language. It's the same language. Uh, what's interesting at the baptism is it's unclear uh, who's all present. Well, we've got Jesus. Maybe John's there. Maybe a couple other people. But here, the voice is directed to the disciples. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we said that back in Matthew 3, we said that this language also refers back to Old Testament um, uh, passages. Uh, uh, 2 or 3 refers back to Psalm 2-7, where um, it's talking about the Messiah, and God says, 
uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's the idea of the ultimate Davidic king. There's a father-son relationship between God and the Davidic king. And the ultimate Davidic king, we understand that there's a father-son relationship, but it's because the ultimate king, the Messiah, is God the Son incarnate. That language is being alluded to. Here's the ultimate king. But also, another passage, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Don't actually turn back to Isaiah 42. Turn back to Matthew 12, because Matthew quotes Isaiah 42, and you'll see that same language. Isaiah, uh, Matthew 12, uh, 17 and following. Matthew was quoting Isaiah 42 here. And Matthew is saying, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not uh, not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And that quote and that allusion of the father's language saying, this is my son, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, it alludes to that servant figure in Isaiah. But, and the deal with the servant figure in Isaiah is he's the ultimate king, he's the ultimate Davidic king who's going to rule, but in Isaiah he's also the ultimate Davidic king who's going to suffer and die in order to draw his people to himself. So the father is endorsing the son to the disciples, but he's also saying, here's the ultimate king, here's the ultimate, here's the ultimate king who's going to suffer for his people. In other words, he's endorsing the message that Jesus has been po- trying to point the disciples to. It's necessary for me to go to Jerusalem and to suffer and to die. And the father, even by saying this, is saying, here is my beloved son. I, I, um, uh, I, have chosen him for this, mis- for this mission. Literally, it reads, for whom I was well pleased. In other words, he was, the father was well pleased with the son from all eternity, and then he sent him as the ultimate king on this mis- mission to die for his people so that ultimately he could lead his people in that second exodus, regathering not only Israel, but also the nations of the world. But there's one other key difference between what the Father says here and what was said at the baptism. He adds something. He adds something. If you were to compare this with Matthew 3, 16 and 17, you would notice that the Father adds the little imperative at the end, listen to him. And this is a present command. It's the idea of uh, listen and keep listening. Keep listening to this one because this one is... Not only the ultimate king, but he's the ultimate prophet. Because this language, I told you we're going to do a lot of page turning, this language alludes to another passage in the law, Deuteronomy 18. Go to Deuteronomy 18. There's a kaleidoscope of imagery that's coalescing in the uh, transfiguration. Go to Deuteronomy 18. You remember that the people of Israel are afraid at the base of Mount Sinai to hear God's voice. They think they're going to be destroyed. And so what do they say? They say, hey, uh, we need a mediator. We need someone who's going to stand in for us. And that person ends up being Moses. And with that backdrop, we get what Moses says in 
Deuteronomy 18, 15. Notice what he says. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And Yahweh said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for you for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Listen to him. You hear that language in Deuteronomy, and that's the exact same language in Mount of Transfiguration because the emphasis is the father's not only endorsing his son as the ultimate king, the ultimate servant who's going to suffer for his people, but the ultimate prophet. Here's the one that Moses spoke about. He's supreme to Moses. He's the source. Uh, his glory is the source. Moses' glory is reflected and you, Peter, James, and John, and by extension, all the disciples need to listen to him, to heed him, because he is that ultimate king, because he is that ultimate prophet that God had prophesied about. The prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. But it kind of raises a question, what are they supposed to listen to? What are they supposed to listen to? It says, listen to him. Now, of course, we understand that whatever Jesus says and whatever he commands, they ought to be listening to. But in context, what has Jesus been emphasizing and saying that they don't want to listen to? His suffering and death. They're plenty happy with a, a glorious Messiah, a Messiah who's going to reign. But Remember what Peter said when Jesus said, it's necessary for me to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to be raised. Peter's like, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. They don't want to listen to the message of a suffering Messiah. And so the Father is endorsing that message particularly. Yes, he's endorsing all that Jesus would say in command, but he is endorsing the message of Jesus suffering and dying, that it must be so particularly. And notice, again, how the disciples respond. They hear the voice from the cloud, just like the people of Israel did. They're terrified in exactly the same way. They fell on their faces, and they're terrified. And then what happens? Verse 7, but Jesus came up and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And this is a beautiful, beautiful picture of, together with everything that we've seen, of Jesus being the ultimate mediator. He's the ultimate king. He's also the ultimate prophet you need to listen to. But just like Moses, who had to go up into the cloud to, um, to, to receive God's word and then to bring it back down, he is, here Jesus is presented as the ultimate mediator. He comes out from his glory. He's now revealed his his uh, heavenly glory, and he comes up and he gently touches Peter, James, and John. And they're terrified, and rightfully are they terrified because God's glory and presence is right there, and they are sinful people, but what happens? Jesus comes, and he gently touches them, and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Rise. 
He's back in same old face that they've seen and known for years, same old clothes. He's back in his human humility. And what does he do? He forms the mediator between the holy and glorious presence of an almighty God and these three sinful disciples. And what's going on? It's all, all the illusions that we've been talking about, it's supposed to paint this picture that Jesus is the ultimate king, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate mediator, and you need to listen to him. He is the Father's beloved son, beloved from all eternity. And he has sent him, and you need to listen to him. So what do we take even from just this portion of the text? How do we apply this? to uh, ourselves. Well, the main focus is for both Matthew's original audience and for us is this, see the glory of Jesus and who he is in relation to the Father. You know, people often talk, oh yeah, Jesus is a great teacher, he's a wise guy, he's, he's, he's really nice, I like him, he gives me warm fuzzies, especially at Christmas time, he gives me warm fuzzies. But you need to see the glory of Jesus and that he is the Father's beloved Son. And you need to see him in all of his offices, which we really kind of see here in in a large measure. You need to see him as prophet. The one who above anyone else speaks for God because he is God, the Son he must be listened to. You, yes, Jesus is a great prophet, the greatest prophet. He is the most intimate messenger for God. There could, you couldn't get closer to God because he is God speaking for God. You need to see him as prophet. You need to see him as king. We've been talking about that in Matthew a lot because that's the big focal point of Matthew. Jesus is king. You need to see him as king, the one who will come in the same glory. Remember, they're seeing a snapshot of the coming kingdom. Jesus is going to come like that. And you don't believe me, go read Revelation and John sees the exact same thing. He sees the same thing in Revelation that he saw on the day of transfiguration because that's how Jesus is going to come to this earth a second time. He is going to come in the same glory witnessed on the mountain in that time to rescue his people, to judge the wicked, and to rule over the whole world. And he demands your allegiance. He is king. He demands your allegiance. Jesus isn't begging. He is demanding your allegiance, that you lay down arms of following sin and self, and you entrust yourself to him as that ultimate king. And you need to see him as mediator, the one who alone can calm our fears in drawing near to the glorious and holy God. We so undervalue the majesty and the holiness and the greatness of God. Many people would say, well, if God's real, let him show himself to me. Old friend, you do not want that. You do not want that without a mediator. You do not want that without a mediator, but Jesus is that mediator. To use the language of Job, he is the one that Job foresaw who can lay his hand on God and lay his hand on humanity, and he can cover the gap so that a sinful people can be restored to dwelling with and basking in the glory of a holy God and no longer be terrified. 
No longer be terrified of God's judgment. But he calls for your repentance and faith as mediator, as the one who alone can calm our fears and drawing near to a glorious and holy God. He calls you to repentance and faith. You can't draw near to God and hold on to your sin. You can't draw near to God and hold on to your own life. You have to disown yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That's what repentance is. Turning your allegiance from sin and self, and that's going to change the whole course of your life. And then what? The flip side of repentance, faith, and trusting yourself to Jesus as the only one who can bridge that gap. And how can he do it? Because how can he be the one called Jesus, the one who will save his people from his sins, as Matthew one twenty one talks about, only by his atonement, which it is necessary for him to go and die. We said this last week, I'll say it again, that the reason the atonement is necessary, the reason the suffering of the Messiah is necessary is because of your sin. Your sin, individually. Your sin as an individual is enough to put the Son of God on the cross if you would draw near to a holy God. Your sin and my sin puts the Son of God, made the atonement necessary, made the cross necessary so that the Son of God as the perfect mediator could die in our place taking the wrath of God, the full fury of that glory cloud on himself on the cross so that that debt is paid, and not only to have our sins forgiven, but not only that, but Jesus as the full, full and perfect human lived the perfect, uh, lived in flesh righteousness that you and I do not have so that because the Father looks at his beloved Son with whom he's well pleased, we can also draw near to God. And the same can be said of us if we are in Christ, if we've exercised repentance and faith. The Father can say to you, you are my Son, with you I am well pleased. Not because you are well pleasing in and of yourself, but because Jesus is well pleasing in your place. So we need to listen to the Father's beloved Son. Second, we need to see this. You need to listen to the Son of Man's message of suffering before restoration. You need to listen to the Son of Man's message of suffering before restoration. Look at verse 9. We get a shift here. They're Verse 8, they lift up their eyes. Jesus touches them gently. Uh, they lift up their eyes. They see no one but Jesus only. He is the supreme one. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision. Now, the word vision there, it just means something seen. It's not trying to communicate. The, when we hear the word vision in English, we kind of think, oh, maybe it's something that didn't actually happen. But that's not the idea here. The idea here is they actually saw it. It was real. It was right there. But tell no one what you saw until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, why would he say that? He took these three along as eyewitnesses of his glory, of the eyewitnesses of the, the coming kingdom. Why does he tell them not to tell anyone anything until he raises from the dead? Well, it's the same reason that he told them in 1620, tell no one I'm the Messiah. If they only told them, if the disciples went around telling the other disciples, let alone the other crowds, what they saw in the Mount of Transfiguration, it would, get, it would, it would give the wrong impression 
of the Messiah. Remember, the conception of the day is the Messiah is a political um, leader. He's a ruler. He's going to rescue Israel from Rome and from the nations. And that is true. The Messiah will do that. The Messiah is a political leader, but that's the only thing they focused on. They can't see the suffering yet, the necessity of the suffering. And even now, they don't understand it. Not yet. What do they need to wait for? They need to wait until this Messiah actually does suffer and rise from the dead, and then is the appropriate time to talk about what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're eyewitnesses, but they need to wait. But then the disciples raise a question. Verse 10, the disciples ask them, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, you can see what they're alluding to, can't you? They're alluding back to Malachi 4, 4 uh, Malachi 4, 4 through 5, which, uh, 4, 4 through 6, which says that Elijah's got to come first before the day of the Lord. Now, what did they just witness on in the sight that they saw? They saw a snapshot of the coming kingdom. They saw a snapshot of the coming of the day of the Lord. So they think, they think, Hey, it's coming. It's right here. It started. But they ask this question. It's like, hey, wait a minute. Elijah's supposed to come first. And he touched down just a few minutes ago, but then he left. So if the day of the... They're thinking the day of the Lord is imminent. They think the culmination of all this is imminent. Why did, Messiah, why did Elijah leave? Elijah's supposed to come, and he's supposed to restore all things. And they're confused. And Jesus gets back with them. Verse 11... He answered, Elijah does come. Literally, Elijah is coming. Elijah is coming, and he will restore all things. Now, what is Jesus saying there? He is affirming that the scribes are right. Elijah has to come first. And notice how Jesus is speaking of it. He's speaking of it as if it hasn't happened yet. Verse 11, Elijah is coming and he will restore all things. What does it mean to restore all things? He's talking about Elijah's going to call Israel to repentance, which is going to ultimately kick off uh, the repentance of Israel and the blessing to Israel, and then all the nations of the world. It's all going to come about. But yeah, you're right. Elijah is coming, and he will restore all things. What is Jesus affirming? It's got to happen. It will happen. But he's speaking of it as future. But then notice what he does in verse 12. But I tell you, so he's kind of doing this thing where on, in verse 11, he's saying, on the one hand, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. And then he's doing this in verse 12. On the other hand, I'm saying to you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist and they're right. So in verse 12, when Jesus says, um, Elijah's already come, what is he saying? He's saying, uh, John was Elijah-like. You go back to Matthew 3 in his ministry, he wears the camel hair and the leather belt, and he looks an awful lot like Elijah, and he's calling for repentance because the kingdom of heavens is at hand. So he looks an awful lot like Elijah. He comes uh, in that spirit. And even you can think of Matthew 11, Matthew 11, where Jesus is talking about kind of the same subject, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A prophet? Yeah, and more than a prophet. This is he who is spoken of in, and then he quotes Malachi. And if you remember what he said in Matthew 11, he says, if you would receive, 
And we, I argued there that that language of reception is not receiving John, but receiving the message of repentance. In other words, if you would repent, Elijah would have been, or John is Elijah who is to come. Did Israel repent? No. So did Elijah come? Yeah, he came. Is he coming? Yeah, he's coming. There's two comings of Elijah is what Jesus is affirming here. Yes, Elijah came. They didn't recognize him. In fact, they, he's speaking collectively of the leadership of Israel, Herod, who put him in prison, had him executed, but also, by extension, the other leadership and Israel. Elijah suffered, and they killed him. And so, as the forerunner goes, so goes the one who's coming after, namely Jesus. And that's what Jesus says. So also, in this way also, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. The way that, in a similar sort of way that John suffered and was executed, he wasn't received, there wasn't repentance, Jesus will be as well. So what is this set up for? It sets up for not only two comings of the Messiah, but two comings of Elijah. Two comings of Elijah. Elijah will come, and he will restore all things. He will come again, and he will speak a message of repentance to Israel, and that time, Israel is going to respond, and it will repent, and it will come back, and the Messiah will come back to claim his kingdom. You see, you got to understand, Matthew's writing to a Jewish Christian audience, those who have committed themselves to the Messiah, but are like, why is the, Messiah, the idea of a suffering Messiah would have been so hard for them to grasp? Where's the glory? Where, what about Elijah coming? All these questions that are being asked here. And Matthew's saying, look, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. The road is, glory, uh, is suffering first, then glory. Yes, the glory is com- coming, but it's going to come later. Elijah's going to come, and then the king, is, the Messiah is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back in his glory. And the key to this is what happened on the mount. What did the Father say? He endorsed everything that the Messiah was saying. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The Father has endorsed this plan. Suffering first, then glory. Suffering first, then restoration. And so for us, the message is the same. Listen to his message of suffering before restoration. The Son of Man had to suffer, die, and rise again because of your sin. Suffering first before entering his glory. And that is good news because his suffering for your sin prepares you to face the day of the Lord. We will all come before God's judgment seat on the day of the Lord. Actually, who's going to be the judge on the day of the Lord? It's going to be Christ himself. You will come before Jesus on the day of the Lord, and he will be your judge, and he will judge according to the course of your life, like he just said in the last passage last week. And the only way you can stand in the day of the Lord before the glorious King, the glorious God, is his suffering for your sin on your behalf. If you repent, and only if you repent and have faith in him, can you face the day of the Lord. 
But there's something else here, too, as Jesus has said. Remember, all of this kind of flows out of Matthew 16, 21 through 28, where Jesus does what? If you're going to repent and place faith in me, what does that look like? What does it look like to be a Christian? It looks like disowning yourself. I'm not living for self anymore. I'm not living for my will. I'm living for God's will. I'm living for Christ's will. I'm taking up my cross. means I'm willing to die the most shameful and painful death in this life. I'm willing to let my life look stupid in the eyes of the world, I'm willing to suffer for the sake of Christ and to follow him. And is it just raw sacrifice? Is that where it ends? No, you do so because of the glory that's coming. The Messiah suffered and is going to enter his glory. And if you repent and have faith, if you disown yourself, take up your cross and follow him, then you follow him on that road and you suffer in this life and all the manifestations that looks like before what? Before the glorious king comes and you get to share in his glory with him. And that's what drives you on through the difficulties of following Christ. The glory that's coming, you ask yourself, is it worth it? Because it's not just a one and done decision of, yeah, I'm going to follow Christ and that's it. It's a whole life of every day I'm going to repent and entrust myself to the Christ. And, okay, I've got to pay this sacrifice for following Christ. I've got to disown myself in this way, in all of the myriad ways, the thousand ways that looks like every single day because I follow Christ. What's going to drive you on? What's going to keep you going? The glory at the end. The glory of the Christ. The glory of his kingdom. And you're like, how do we know it's real? How do we know that's real? Well, that's why Jesus gave us three eyewitnesses who saw a snapshot of that future glory. And they come down to that mountain, and after the resurrection, they say, yeah, it's real. It's legitimate. Turn to 2 Peter 1. Peter, towards the end of his life, Or he's going to die. Says this, 2 Peter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what is Peter's argument? He's saying, all that the prophet said is true because we saw, we saw an eyewitness snapshot on the Mount of Transfiguration, and that's what's going to carry you through. The glory, the, the glory of the Messiah, the suffering is now as disciples as it was with Christ, but the glory is coming and we wait for him. And that's what carries you through disowning yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus in this life. That's what's going to lead you to denying sin. 
the sin that tempts you each and every day that, that uh, well, this looks pretty good. Let me just go to the world a little bit. And what's going to cause you to say no to that? What's going to cause you to say no is to say, no, the glory that is coming, the glory that is coming is better than anything that this world has to offer. The glory will carry of the Messiah. Suffering first, then glory will carry you along. Listen to the Father's beloved Son, the ultimate prophet, king, and mediator, and his message of suffering before restoration. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the king, the rightful king of this world, and we wait for you to come and claim your kingdom. We wait for your glory. We wait for you to bring judgment on the wicked and to restore your faithful remnant. And Lord, we know we would be annihilated on that day. We would endure eternal suffering apart from the necessity of you suffering and dying for your people. Lord, help us to continue to repent, to continue to place our faith in you each and every day, to disown ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you because your majesty, your glory, your excellence, your awesomeness, your supremacy are worth it. Lord, if there are any who have not bowed the knee, who are still rebels, Lord, I pray that you would humble them and that you would draw them to yourself and show them your mercy and your love even as you have showed us who do repent and believe in you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for suffering so that we might, in some unfathomable mystery, be able to share and enjoy your glory. Lord, we long for that, and we long that you would come, Lord Jesus. And yet we also, at the same time, ask that you would tarry to save more kingdom citizens for yourself. Make us faithful proclaimers of this truth in our life, Lord, you've given us that responsibility. Help us to be faithful to it. And may we see people repent, but no matter what, looking ahead to the glory that is promised to keep us going. We ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.